You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and it is my pleasure to have you along for the next hour as we take a tour of the arts. I confess that I have been rather lax in my mask wearing of late. I've been fully vaccinated for a couple of months. All my pals are vaccinated. It's summertime. There are fruity cocktails to be sipped while watching a performance. So my mask guard has been slowly dropping. But in the last few days, I have heard of friends, both here in Missouri and back in the United Kingdom, who, despite being fully vaccinated, have tested positive for COVID. And whilst they thanks to the vaccine, did not get terribly sick, it was a wake-up call for me that I should be less blasé about wearing my mask when I am basking in the revival of arts events. And it is so nice to get to go to arts events again, and thankfully there are many things to do outside. Take this weekend, for example. The Mobile Funk Unit are getting their groove on outdoors at Rose Music Hall tonight, and I am particularly smitten with the handsome guitar player. Tomorrow night, I can sit under the stars at Maplewood Barn and watch the Civil War version of Shakespeare's Henry V with a cast of local luminaries. And Sunday night, I can go to Ragtech Cinema's open-air screen at Logboat and watch Magic Mike XXL, because apparently... That's a ragtag tradition. And there are indoor, well-spaced-out options too, like Saturday night's finale concert for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights Festival. But more on that later in today's show. Today's art tour is definitely one that lends itself to fruity cocktails. We have some summer reading suggestions from Skylock bookshop owner Alex George, a look at Sega Browdis Gallery's Small Works exhibit, and finally, a trip to the crossroads of symphonic music and hip-hop dance. I'm ready when you are. Let's start with the books. Whenever I imagine being at the beach, it always involves a shady palm tree, a cocktail glass that magically refills itself, and a stack of novels that at one point or another are set by the sea. Those mentions of the sea when I'm sitting looking out over an ocean jettison me into a very zen state of calm, a kind of self-reinforcing loop. And as summer is upon us and I feel like I should be going to the beach, even though sadly I am not, I thought it was time to check in with Columbia's book-selling, book-writing guru, Alex George, to see what books are on (laughs) Skylark Bookshop's recommended summer reading list. It has been a hot minute since you were last here, so welcome back, Alex. Thanks, Diana. It's great to be back. So whenever I come shopping at Skylark, I always tell Carrie that I want a big fat book, a literary tome, because I hate 
finishing books. I'm always so immersed in the story and the life of the characters that finishing a book feels like leaving a great party too early. Slim books are just they're just over too fast. But of course, it has to be a really well-written, compelling book or else it's just like being at a really dull party without an escape plan. So as a writer, do you feel like you have a thousand-page novel waiting to emerge when the time is right? You know, the length of a novel when you're writing it is one that um, I think it's a it's dangerous territory to go <laughs> yeah. into a, to go into a thing thinking that you know how long it's going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, where one of my books, I I kind of did that, and I sort of knew what I at least I knew what I wanted it to be, and this was a good American. I wanted it to be this big, multi generational, immersive thing, and so it ended up being that happily, and it was quite long. But most of the time when I'm writing, I just go until I've finished and then I see how long it is and that tends to be to allow it to sort of evolve organically tends to work best for me anyway otherwise it can feel a little bit forced but I know what you mean that there's I mean there are joys to both there's a joy to that big immersive book and uh, you know and I was talking to Kerry yesterday and we know that you like those but there's also some delights to quicker reads as well I think and particularly in fact in the summer. Well, when I visited the shop last week to pick up Laura McHugh's brand new, incredibly engrossing, I can't get off the sofa till I finished it, murder mystery, what's done in darkness, I commented to Carrie on how it was slimmer Mm -hmm. volume than her previous works. And Carrie says something really interesting. She said that one of the impacts of COVID seems to be that people are writing more concise novels, that as writers and readers, our brains are seeking less, not more. What is your experience of that? Yeah, I think there is something to that. I mean, I think that, you know, it'll be a long time until we really discover what the effects of COVID has been on our reading habits. Um, certainly when when it began, people were coming in and buying enormous books. We actually sold multiple copies of Ulysses by James Joyce, having <laughs> having sold about one in the previous 18 months, because I think people thought, ah, well, this is my time. I've always been meaning to read this thing. And so now I will. Now, if I had to guess how many people got to the end of it, I think that would probably be a big fat zero. But, um, but I think that, you know, as time went on and, and people became somewhat more realistic about their expectations. And so, yeah, there is, you know, I think, I think that she's right. Um, people are edging towards slightly slimmer, more compact books. Even despite a pandemic, I still didn't make it through Infinite Jest, which has been sitting on my table for <laughs> over a year now. And I, every now and again, I read a couple of pages and bite off another small chapter and <laughs> then it goes away for weeks. So so when you were on vacation, which I realize is a rare treat for a man who wears so many professional hats, but on those rare occasions, what kind of book do you want to read or do you not read on vacation? Because that's the last thing you want to do is look at more written words. Oh, no, I read an absolute ton when I'm on vacation. I mean, we did actually go down to Santa Fe for a week. Um, I can't even remember when it was, but I, I guess it must have been over spring break. And pretty much all I did, it felt like, was read. And I loved every minute of it. Um, as a bookseller and also as an author, reading it takes on a different complexion because I, I'm, I, I read for different reasons. There are times when I read because um, I've been asked to blurb a book and I've just finished reading one of those. And that's always a great privilege and something that I take quite seriously. But then I also have to read a lot of books before they come out in order to be able to talk about them to our customers when they walk through the door. Um, the times when I get to read for pure pleasure as a result of all of that seem to be 
somewhat reduced but that's what I do on vacation uh, and I just I will pick books that I've been meaning to read for ages and take those and uh, it's it's wonderful. Do you reread books or do you not have that possibility? Very rarely is the answer. I do reread books um, these days, but usually for a very specific purpose, which is if I'm going to be interviewing the author, because quite often I will have read a book, as I say, months and months before publication, and then they come to the shop or they might come to the the Unbound Book Festival. And at that point, I will then have to reread to refresh my memory in order to ask some hopefully smart questions. So (laughs) these days, that's the only time I get to reread. Well, let's take a look at some of the books on Skylark's recommended summer reading table. Take us off on a literary reading journey, Alex. Right. Well, you already mentioned the one that I was going to begin with, which was Laura McHugh's new book, What's Done in Darkness, which, you know, is, as you say, it's, it is a slimmer book, but it's full of buried secrets and family estrangements. And of course, Laura's specialty really is this sinister approach that she has with with the Ozarks Uh, and so there's that local flavor which is always so compelling Uh, and one of the wonderful things about Laura is that she brings a ton of drama but without any tokenism and it all feels incredibly real Um, and so as you said it's a sort of pin you down on the sofa until you get to the end of it type book and that that is a um a wonderful, wonderful thing for the, for the summer. And then along the same lines in terms of sort of tension and thriller, uh, another book that's been doing very well with us is Wild Justice Sleeps by Stacey Abrams, who has published several books in, in the romance genre, but this is her first foray into, um, I suppose you'd call it sort of legal thrillerdom. And it's a very, very fast-paced story about the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, she is, I mean, Stacey Abrams, of course, is, I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers for many, many reasons. Uh, but I hadn't read any of her books before. Uh, and this was in- incredibly enjoyable and very clever, very smart and well written. And, uh, you know, that, that's a rather thicker book. But some of the, sometimes the things with these thrillers is that you don't notice because you're turning the pages so quickly. And, uh, it's a, it's a complicated, smart plot and will keep you guessing until the end. So that sounds like one for me. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's very entertaining. And then in a different vein, but also sort of on the sort of the tense thrillery thing, there's a, a book in translation by Natsuku Imamura called Woman in the Purple Skirt. And this is a rather like Laura's book. It's kind of it's a one sit read. It's a psychological thriller. And it's about this woman in the purple skirt who sits on a bench and is uh the subject of a great deal of speculation from various other people um, who sort of swilling around her, including a woman in the yellow cardigan. And this is how they're sort of described in the book. But it's a very, very smart book. There's a great deal of tension as you read it. Uh, and it really forces the reader to observe the lines between observation and admiration. And then you edge into a more sinister issue with stalking and all these sorts of things. It's a very quiet book, or at least it appears to be a very quiet book on the surface, but underneath there is a huge amount of turmoil. And uh, it's one of those books that it is, it's short, um, but it will keep you thinking long after you've sort of closed the book. So that's highly, highly recommended. Um, you know, not your average summer read uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but one that we are enthusiastic about. 
And then another book that uh, we're excited about is for lovers of Circe, uh, Madeline Miller, and who also wrote Song of Achilles. Uh, and this is a book by Claire Haywood called Daughters of Sparta. And like Madeline, Claire Haywood is a terrific writer and she also has academic chops as well. Madeline actually teaches classics. And so she's steeped in, in these stories that she tells. And Claire Haywood is much the same. And this is a reimagining of the Siege of Troy told from a woman's perspective and the constraints that they feel in that society. And it's, a, again, like Madeline Miller, it's a literary page turner, very, very entertaining. And uh, if you like those other ones and you're, you're hankering for more sort of classical myths, uh, then that would be the place to go. What about biographies? Any big biographies or autobiographies out this summer? There are some. There's actually um, Brandy Carlyle has a new autobiography out that's doing very well. And there's also a book by um, George H.W. Bush's chief of staff just after he left office called The Man I Knew. And the author has some local connections. And so that's proving to be quite popular as well. So those are both good picks. And then another memoir that uh, I'm enjoying very much, I'm, I'm actually reading it at the moment, is called After the Fall, which is by Ben Rhodes, who was a staffer in the Obama White House all eight years of that administration. And he was one of Obama's speechwriters. He's one of these people irritatingly young with an enormous brain and uh, he's a terrific <laughs> writer and uh, after he left the white house he went on a tour and went to places like hungary and russia china hong kong to look at other quasi or sometimes not so quasi authoritarian regimes and looking at the rise of these people and how how they came to be and how much of that can be laying at America's door and the policies that America has followed over the past 50 or 60 years. So Ben Rose is an incredibly smart guy, as you might imagine, <laughs> given, his, <laughs> given his resume. And he has a lot of very, very interesting things to say, a lot of great insight and uh, very smart and very interesting. So, and also he opens up, he provides an insight into sort of what went on a little bit in the White House as well. And, and that's always interesting to me. Well, for anyone who, like me, loves a big book, I'm going to recommend The Eighth Life by Nino Haratishvili, a Georgian writer. It is a six-generation tumbling saga laced with secrets and passions and longings and loss and the apparent curse of a secret hot chocolate recipe, which... I love the story and the characters, but also it really gave a fascinating insider perspective at the history of Georgia and the Soviet Union from a perspective that you don't usually see. It's not a Western perspective. It's from the Eastern Bloc perspective and just the cruelties of war and life in the Eastern Bloc during the most of the 20th century. And it is over 900 pages long, but I still felt sad when I had to say goodbye to everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's an enormous book. We had to reinforce the shelves. 
course, when, <laughs> where we got those in. There's another huge book coming out, which is going to be great in September. So we're going a little early here, but I'm just going to mention it because you're talking about big books. And this is the new book by Anthony Durr, who, of course, wrote All the Light We Cannot See. Um, he has a new book out called Cloud Cuckoo Land. I've got it in my hand <gasps> and it is 623 pages long. Um, I have not read it yet, but absolutely everybody I know who has read it cannot praise it enough. And so we are very excited about that book. And uh, uh, I need another holiday <laughs> to read it. <laughs> I think it is one of those ones you want to jump into and it's completely immersive. Well, I will put it on my autumn reading list. Alex George, author of The Paris Hours, owner of Skylark Bookshop, executive director of the Unbound Book Festival and lawyer on the side. Thank you so much for the reading recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Diana. Each summer for the past couple of years, Sega Browdis Gallery has shown a small works exhibit featuring artworks by the artists they represent, with all works being no larger than 8 inches by 8 inches and costing no more than $500. This year's exhibit opened last Friday and it runs through the end of this month. And here to talk about the exhibit and some of the works is the Sega Browdis Gallery curator, Hannah Reeves. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Diana. Thank you for having me. It has been ages since we last chatted. Has the pandemic been a good muse for you as an artist? Oh my gosh. <laughs> as an artist? <laughs> You know, it has been better to me as a gallerist, I think, than as an artist. We were really pushed to bring our sales and our presentation online very, very quickly at the start of the pandemic when things were completely closed. And that as a gallery, you know, that served us very well. And so we've opened up our client base to people all over the world. There were some of those sales before, but we've really flipped our sales from about 80% in person to about 80% online, at least in 2020. I think 2021 is going to look a little different, but um, it was a good impetus for us to kind of get our online ducks in a row and actually went well for us as a gallery. You know, as an artist, boy, I mm, I don't have the same <laughs> answer, unfortunately. It's hard. It's hard to do a Zoom school with two little kids and remote work and then like sneak away to the studio. And, you know, that's what I've heard from a lot of other artists, too. I think we're just starting to, I hope, get our groove back and start to reflect a little bit in our work. But that's feeling I'm at, I'm at the front edge of that process, I think. So do you think that this reflection, we're going to see it in artworks over the next, you know, 12, 24, 48 months, that it's something that's coming? Or do you think people are going to want to forget it artistically and do something else? Oh, that's a good question. I bet there will be some of both. Um, I think that it is starting to come out in my work, maybe even in ways that I didn't necessarily intend. And I, I'm starting to to kind of hear that from other artists as well, like a reflection on loss, which that's always a part of my work, you know, memory and, and loss. And um, so it's always kind of present, but the reflection has changed shape for me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I would not blame anybody who wanted to just make something totally different and be glad to be back in the studio and forget all about it. <laughs> I think it is so fascinating that from a gallery point of view, you had such a strong year in 2020. I mean, yet, like you say, you opened up to the whole world. You were no longer limited 
by who could walk in the gallery. But just as the pandemic went on and on, how you managed to keep the buyers engaged, how did you do that? Oh, it was so interesting. I mean, we just had to think so hard constantly. It was a little bit exhausting, but of course, it's what we love doing, so it was okay. But, you know, do you remember, like, everyone was very excited about Zoom. And then there was also this thing on social media where it was like, we want to see faces. Like, we're deprived of each other's faces. And so I was trying to be aware of that at a certain point. And now I can't even remember what is time. I don't know what what (laughs) month was this, you know. But a bit into the pandemic, I was reflecting on our social media and thinking, like, I want to do, like, little staff intros. I want our faces there. Mm -hmm. I can see that people are needing to see people, you know, and this is when so many of us who run any kind of business were like going live on Facebook. It's like, let's be in front of the camera and like, just try to talk to each other as best we can face to face in, you know, that remote way. But then you also got this feeling a few months later of everyone getting very sick of that, (laughs) you know, and then it's just like, we cannot go live on Facebook anymore, (laughs) you know, but there was just a constant trying to take the pulse, but also just being, being one of the people who absorbs and, you know, feels the effect of other like advertising, but also just communication online that is remote. And there was just a constant need to adjust that throughout the year. It was actually really interesting. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be reading books about it for many decades to come. <laughs> Perhaps, <laughs> if everyone's not too sick about it to, right. write, to write about it. So the Small Works exhibit is a delight every year, partly because there's always ample amounts of whimsy in it, but also because it gives me a chance to sometimes buy a work by an artist I like, but whose work would ordinarily be out of my financial reach. So I wonder, is simple economics at the base of this show for the gallery, or is there a component of giving artists a constraint to work within? Oh, it is absolutely both. It started as the former, the first that you mentioned. It's like an an in, you know, an, an access point for folks who frankly are in the same kind of category as myself. You know, this is the <laughs> level at which I can, I'm not buying, you know, Picassos personally. And so if I'm going to add something to my collection, you know, it is going to be something smaller and more price accessible like this. And we were really thinking about it. There's a huge swath of people for whom that's really exciting, you know, to have a shopping experience in a gallery that feels doable that way. But then what we discovered is that our artists were so excited about it and everyone makes new work for this show. You know, this is not just a, oh, let me see what I have that happens to be tiny. This is like, oh, I'm excited that you are doing this somewhat thematic show I'm going to make something specifically for this. Um, That's what I have done each time personally, too. And it's just a really a nice excuse to maybe finish a a little study or go down a path that you might not do on a big scale yet uh, or just to do something a little bit whimsical. I feel like I see a lot of our artists doing that. You mentioned that word. There's some delight in tiny things. So you've answered my next question, which is, you know, how much arm twisting do you have to do to create this show? It sounds like not very much at all that everybody wants to be in it. Yeah, I think our artists are pretty excited and we get really great participation and I think it's fun for everyone involved. Well, let's take a a verbal look (laughs) 
sure. verbal look at some of the works in this year's show, as there are a few artists and works I'd like to know a little bit more about. I think my absolute favourite body of work is by James Wilson. I love oh, the vividness of his colour palette and his whimsical absurdity in at least yes. a couple of them. Tell me about James Wilson. I don't know him. Oh my gosh. Okay. So he is an artist who is based in Farmington, Missouri, which is actually my hometown. And the way that I know Jim is because he was my art professor at the very, very start of, you know, (laughs) summer school, art school. And so he was, he was a painting professor for his entire career or at least for the, the professor part of his career after, you know, years in New York and then Mexico City just as a painter. Um, he actually, Jim, came during our master's exhibit the first year that we exhibited him here. And in the master's exhibit, there are all these, you know, mid-century New York school guys on the wall. And he, it turns out he was at the New York school with Hans Hoffman, you know, uh, Art Students League of New York. He uh, was there with like four of these guys who were in the masters. He's like, oh, yeah, Mark Arelli, that guy, boy, he was, you know. Uh, so, no, he's just such a seasoned, um, incredibly skilled painter and he can paint anything. And when you go to his house, which I try to do when I visit him in Farmington, there's just thousands. He, he has vertical filing that, you know, rivals the gallery. It's just thousands of paintings, a lot of figurative work. But my favorites are these really crazy scenes that are they're based on things that he has witnessed just driving through, you know, southeast Missouri. Uh, but then he adds kind of a mythological, almost like regionalist, legendary bent to these scenes. And so a lot of times they are huge canvases that are these weird scenes, you know, with multiple figures. But then the small works are so intriguing because it's like a little a little piece it's almost mysterious because you can't quite imagine, like, what is the whole, what is happening here? You know, what is the whole scene? <laughs> and it's like, these are, these are kind of studies pulled out of these enormous scenes that are kind of based in like a weird carnival setting, like a small town. I mean, we're talking Farmington, Missouri, country days, some weird performative stuff happening. Uh, they're just fantastic. You also have six works by Shestin Pellard, which are the absolute opposite of James Wilson's, mostly mm-hmm. grayscale, diffused abstractions that make me think of rocky snowdrifts in a snowstorm or, or sea outcrops in a morning mist. But most intriguing is the medium. Tell us about pigment on mold-made watercolour paper. Mm-hmm. So when she's talking about the paper, first of all, this is handmade paper. And so it's cast into a mold rather than poured, which a lot of bigger sheets, it's kind of a, a fiber person's distinction, but um, but a beautifully textural, thick, handmade paper. But this artist, whether she's working on very, very large scale canvases, which we have had on the wall, that's what also is so fun about small works. Kirsten Payard that we had a couple of years ago on the big walls had to go on the literal biggest walls of the gallery because they wouldn't fit anywhere else. And so that's her normal scale. (laughs) And then she's made these wonderful eight by eight inch pieces for us. But you're right. They're very atmospheric. The pigment is powdered. And so sometimes she's setting it down, you know, using a variety of methods to kind of set it onto the paper. But she's working with it as a powder and that gives her an ability to make it... uh, 
very well atmospheric, I guess, is the word. So the larger scale canvases look like they're like cosmos, I think is the title of that series. And these feel a little more related to landscape. They're definitely abstract, but very foggy, just beautiful. Yeah, I love them. One of your artists who no matter what canvas size you give him will cram so many colors and texture and story into it is Josh George. <laughs> I knew that was what you were going to say. An artist who I'm very, I'm very happy to already have in my own collection. And he seems like an artist like Metro Mitchell, who you also have in the show, whose work is also in my collection, whose work just flies off the wall generally. What do you think it is about his work that people find so appealing? Oh my gosh, it's so rewarding whether so you're looking at an image of his work and you're like, oh, there's a lot going on here. And I think that his uh, Mitra's alike when you then stand in front of it, it's almost stunning to to get the full effect of that bit of texture and just the painterly quality. Um so I think people are regularly just floored by Josh George. Every little tiny piece of this very geometrically composed collage is hand cut from a different paper that has like a visual texture or an actual texture. And so the effect is just, it's almost overwhelming, even when it's on a tiny scale. He also, you know, he has a big international following and market. So I do think there are people who just are waiting like, oh, this is a really accessible piece by Josh. This is a piece I could actually own by Josh George or, you know, like you mentioned, Mitra, big monumental figurative canvases, but she's made these little pieces, especially for small work. So that's like, this is your chance. So it's very exciting. So you have one work in the show, which looks a little different than the body of work I've seen you posting recently on social media. Tell us about the body of work that your piece in the show comes from, which is an acrylic and stitching on organdy and cheesecloth. Yeah, well, so this was a little bit of a nerve wracking thing to me because I rushed to finish this piece for small works, but it was such a good excuse to, to, you know, finish a study in a completely new vein. Um, I have a show at Sager Broadus in August, and that'll be more what people are used to seeing that's portraiture and representational work with a Victorian aesthetic to it. And so that I'm finishing up now and that's going up soon. But the show after that will be at Columbia Art League, a duo with Pam Gaynor, who's an oil painter and also an art quilter. And Pam and I have conceived of a show that is about quilting and women's work. And for that, I'm working on this completely abstract series. And it's a push for me to come away from representation and just see what I can do with texture, layering, and stitching. The idea of quilting is very much about layering fabrics. And so in this study, which is the very, very start, the very front end of that abstract series that'll be at Cal in October, it's about like layering and finding a sense of pattern referring to historical fabric patterns while also distorting them and and then hand stitching the whole thing. So it's, yeah, a little advance, a little sneak peek of what's coming in October. Yes, that's a nice way to think of it. (laughs) (laughs) So what for you stands out in this show? What are some of your favorite works? Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. I know it's hard on to answer. That's always hard. Um, Well, I I adore Stephen Gamble. Um, He's an illustrator that many folks, you know, my age grew up with the 
the books that he illustrated and remember him from the Scholastic Fair. It, he was just a memorable influence. And it turns out he is just an absolutely lovely human being um, and has become kind of a pen pal to all of us here at the gallery. He likes to, to write and to send little watercolors. His work is very, very sought after. So to have these like affordable, they're actually six inch by six inch abstracts by Stephen Gamble. I absolutely love those. There's three of them in the show. Um, oh, gosh. Well, you know, we got to have Mitra Mitchell. You mentioned her earlier, but she was here for the opening. And that's always just such a treat to, you know, get to see her in person and um, to have these these works of hers are very Halloweeny. They're very fun and they feel like they're snippets out of some bigger scene, kind of like we were talking about with Jim Wilson. So those are they're super fun as well. But gosh, I just uh, overall, I love hanging this show and I love the mix. There are 31 artists, all media that you can imagine, all styles of work that you can imagine and getting them on the wall all in one room and then being able to like turn around in a circle and just like see so much color and texture and variety is that in itself is like a piece that I love. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle putting a show together because you have all of these different colors and different themes and different ways of framing things and some things don't want to sit next to others. And so working out how it all fits together, I think is a very overlooked uh, artistic components of an art show. People look at the art, but they don't think about how the whole thing has been put <laughs> together. So it is a fun, a fun job to do. It is. It absolutely shapes up like a piece of art. I mean, it feels like creating a piece of art to see a show come together like this. Final artist I want to have you talk a little about is Katie Barnes, whose tiny ceramic houses and village collections are <laughs> so adorable and in a price range that you generally do not see at Sega Browdis. She's one of our local artists. And given how much chatter I see about her work online, I wonder how much work she is producing to meet the demand. I mean, do they just fly out of Sega Browdis? It is it is pretty exciting to people. Um, I am surprised that there are still some left. So people should check them out online because I thought I honestly thought that hers would sell out the very first day. There's still a little bit left. She also gets the award, by the way, for having the tiniest work in the small works <laughs> exhibit, which is a feat. Um, but oh, my gosh, they're they're absolutely whimsical, completely collectible, almost like a buildable way. Um, and she, you're right. I mean, she must just be working constantly. And, you know, people don't realize that just because something's tiny doesn't mean it took less time. I think sometimes it might take more time to just get in there and get into the detail. And that certainly feels like the case with these little Katie Barnes pieces. I mean, they are, they're just fabulous. Well, the Small Works exhibit is on display at Sega Browdis Gallery through July the 31st, as well as on their website at segabrowdisgallery.com. Hannah, are your hours uh, still by appointment or are you open Tuesday to Saturday 11 till 6? We are now open at our former regular hours. So uh, Tuesday through Saturday 11 to 6 is correct. Perfect. Well, Hannah Reeves, thank you as always for the fine art chat. Thank you so much, Diana. 
The final concert of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights Music Festival takes place tomorrow night at Jesse Auditorium. The concert is called Breaking Classical and it is at the unusual crossroads of classical music and hip-hop dance. It is a pairing that began back in 1993 at a street festival in Houston, Texas, when a retired public school dance teacher watched a group of hip-hop dancers perform and thought... These are B-boys that could benefit from a little on-stage coaching. Flash forward a couple of decades and the Fly Dance Company, aka the Gentlemen of Hip Hop, have performed across the United States and overseas. And their community outreach of positive social messages reaches an amazing 50,000 children annually. So what a delight it is to welcome to the show this morning the executive director of the Fly Dance Company, Jorge Casco, and its founder, Kathy Musicwood. Good morning, Jorge and Kathy. Thank Good you. Morning. Good morning. So the story of the Fly Dance Company has to rank as one of the most feel-good stories in contemporary dance and an example of the power that one individual has to make real change in so many thousands of lives. But let me start with Jorge. Tell me your story and how you got involved with the company. The way I got involved in the company was I actually saw Fly perform. I was about 14 years old. And I went to a theater here in Houston called Miller Theater. And I hear this music playing from this amphitheater. And there's a group of guys uh, that I hang out with in our neighborhood who I were dancing at the time. So we go up to the top of the hill and we're standing there. And all of a sudden, I hear this piece, Claire de Lune, classical piece. Well, I didn't know at the time what I was really listening to. And then all of a sudden, I hear a big roar from the audience. And there's a guy going across the stage on a skateboard <laughs> and they just blew my mind. And then he was doing some ballet moves, but you know, like a spoof. And then the guys would come out on the side doing some weight sharing and flipping on each other. And it would just, it just blew my mind. I didn't know that, that you could even do hip hop to any other type of music. And that was my first experience seeing flying. Well, I mean, from seeing it to being in it is a different story. I mean, how did you then become part of the company? After that, the, performing at my uh, little brother's middle school. She was doing an after-school program there with one of the other co-owners of Fly, Chris Cortez, and he was actually in the class with my brother. And Kathy, and she was teaching my brother and Chris at the time. And, you know, we were just a local crew in our neighborhood, and, you know, we were just compete and you know, do stuff locally. So the principal approached us to do a performance at the end of the year. And we thought we were like hot stuff. And the next thing you know, here comes Kathy with the professional group, Fly Dance Company, the same group that I had seen at Miller. Now they're in front of me at this educational show. And these guys are coming in like, you know, one guy does this type of move. The other guy does that move. They're like superheroes. And that was the first time I saw them like right, right in front of me and that's where I met Kathy, and she was, she was like, well, I like what you guys did, you know. She gave me her card, and um, she went to Europe, and when she went to Europe, she's like, I'm going to call you right before I go to Europe. But she never called me, and I'm literally sitting by the phone like one day, two days, three days, four days. We used to rehearse, practice in the front of the apartments, and we moved it to the back where I was. I pulled the phone out. This one, we had the phone cord, had the phone cord outside. Everyone was practicing in front of my apartments. And I, every two seconds, I run inside. <laughs> hey, mom, did, did, did Kathy call? She's like, no. Okay, did Kathy call? Did Kathy call by the 50th time? No, give me my phone already. What are you doing? You know what I mean? And then finally, she she goes to Europe, comes back. Then I see her 
driving by and unloading her car. And I remember I walked, was walking to the store, grabbing Dr. Pepper and some hot Cheetos. And I saw her car and I opened the Cheetos and I dropped everything. Soda spills everywhere, Cheetos everywhere. <laughs> I make a beeline straight to Kathy. I'm like a little chihuahua nipping at her heels. Hey, what happened? How good are you going to call me? You like where you call me? Da, da, da. She's like, hey, without missing the beat, she's like, hey, you, be quiet. Grab that box and follow me, right? And at the time, I was so small, she thought I was a middle school student, but I really wasn't. And that started our conversation, and then we begged her to help us out. And little by little, she started donating her time, and eventually we ended up, you know, she invited us to actually become part of the company. In a nutshell, you know, that's kind of what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy, is that how you remember it? (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, you know, they were like gnats flying around, (laughs) but I actually got a grant from Colin Powell to do a a Mars Millennium project one summer. I got $6,000. And uh, so I decided to use this group that had to be 18 and under. So I picked them up every day, bought them meals, costumed them, and we did a performance for the mayor and uh, Colin Powell's representatives for his, uh, I forgot what his group's called, but... We did a Mars program where they flew to Mars in a spaceship, and it was really a nice piece. And um, that started this company off. And when some of my other guys decided they didn't want to dance anymore, I walked in one day and said, you guys are the company. Get ready. And our mods dropped to the floor like, what? (laughs) They weren't ready, but they got ready. So, Kathy, my understanding is that your background, you were a public school dance teacher, but you were working, you were coaching girls' drill teams and baton twirling was your background and working with girls. So how much of a shift was this for you to go from coaching girls' drill teams to suddenly working with a group of street breakdancers who were all men? It was totally different, and I loved every moment of it. Um, it was way different from working with girls. They didn't get hurt. They didn't whine. Uh, it was uh, no parents, and I virtually had control most of the time. There are other times I had to get strong arm and tell them <laughs> things, but I loved it because it was such a free-form, different, artistic kind of way of moving, and I hate teaching technique. So this was ready-made for me because they come ready with their own technique and all I have to do is choreograph. So it was kind of fun, sort of a free-form choreography. And it was different, but we created something new together. I mean, the learning curve must have been so steep because at a basic level, there's just a whole different lingo involved in breakdancing and hip-hop culture that I'm guessing you didn't know. No, I didn't, and I absolutely had to learn. But they were patient with me as I was patient with them, and they do some basic ballet moves. I just don't call it that. I lie to them and say, it's just a turn, you know. So um, we've learned from each other, and uh, I've learned a lot about the social aspect of uh, being with these guys, and they've learned the aspect of, of eating whole wheat bread instead of white bread. So, 
So it's been an interesting transition. And when we traveled together, it really was interesting because I was the only one that could drive. They couldn't yeah. drive because they weren't old enough. Yeah, I mean, we were like 16, 17 years old on the road, you know, and so. she had to pick up a lot of the slack, you know, and I was you know, that was kind of her role at the time. And we're, you know, we're fresh off the block. Like nobody really is explaining anything to us uh, as far as how, you know, theater etiquette and everything until Kathy got into our life. And, you know, we grew up with parents at home who taught, taught us right from wrong. But performing and walking into a theater and the way you're supposed to react and all those things is something that she really taught us. Yeah, and, we have something called the two block rule. And all I have to do is just hold up two fingers. It means... <laughs> Do not criticize until you get two blocks from the theater. <laughs> so they had to learn that and say please and thank you, and they write thank you notes. And, yeah. uh, they're very polite to backstage crew because that crew can kill the performance. So they've learned to be polite and, and be gentlemen. Well, that's why they call us the gentlemen of hip hop. That's yeah. not a that's not a term that we gave ourselves. And it's just something that behind the scenes, everybody calls us that. So when we rebranded it, I talked to Kathy. I was like, Kathy, I think we should use this. And she's like, it's perfect. Let's use it. You know, so and it's worked, you know, because we're gentlemen on and off the floor. So, Kathy, why classical music? Well, the first performance we ever did was going to be for an adjudicated concert here in town for all the contemporary dance companies. And I knew who the judges were going to be. They were all my age. And I said, guys, we got to use some music that appeals to those people. They're my age, and we can't use your music. So let's do something totally different. So we decided to use music by Antonio Vivaldi. And I put him in jeans and a tux coat with tails. And... Out of 30 groups, they not only got on the concert, but they made the finale position. So I knew then that we had something unusual in going for us. Besides that, how can you go wrong with classical music? It's powerful. It's great. It's wonderful. And they've learned to appreciate it to some degree. And uh, we still dance to old school R&B and some new music, but it has to be something I can listen to for a thousand times before I'll use it. And it has to appeal to a wide range of audience because that we're diversified and we, we appeal to older adults as well as young kids. And so that's what I want for us. I don't want it to appeal to just one group. It has to appeal universally. That's our humor is universal also. So, I mean, when I think about breakdancing and hip hop, which has since its early days been about disenfranchised uh, young people having a voice in which to describe their social and economic hardships, uh, the issues they face. It's so far from the culture of Western classical music and people in tuxedos clapping politely. So hip-hop culture is just so raw and honest. It's a sound of the street of spoken rhyme and scratching and breakdancing. And then you have classical music, which is absolutely none of that. So Jorge, tell me about that juxtaposition for you, how you square those two really different cultures. Well, we're actually more, we have a lot more in common than we actually have differences, right? I think that's why 
the, the relationship between Kathy and the dancers, between hip-hop and classical, why are these two opposites attracted to each other and why are they working together, right? So if we look at music just in general, music has been able to grow from classical music to jazz to rock and roll to hip-hop. If we look at classical music, that would be the elder statesman, right? So somebody uh, a more mature, right? And we're looking at hip-hop, that would be somebody that's like in their early 30s. So you got to think about what you were doing when you were in your early 30s, right? So if we take a look back to where the age that we're at now, we have had time to grow, right? So there's a lot of similarities in hip-hop and in symphonic music, right? Some people might say that hip-hop music is rude, it's obnoxious, it's sexist, it's uh, bad language, or it's violent or whatever, right? Or it's like it's popular with the youth. If we look at symphonic music at one point, symphonic music was the pop culture, it was the pop music of its time. And we had people like Bizet would, would start riots at his concerts, eccentric composers like Mozart, Shavisky. right? Stravinsky, who, who would walk away from the performances and leave their audiences in roars. And then sometimes would even create pieces about death and violence. And, and there was even one composer who actually murdered his wife. So if we're pointing fingers at hip-hop to say this is all of this, but we haven't let hip-hop music time to develop, right? And from the jazz epidemic with, with the heroin epidemic with the jazz musicians in the earlier years, and then, you know, we lost a lot of great musicians in rock and roll due to overdoses and drug culture from Janis Joplin to Jimi Hendrix. But if we pull back the layers of everything, I think that one thing that at the time that each each genre of music spoke for the youth and this hip-hop movement is speaking for the youth of today. We don't have to like it or agree with it, but this is a reality. This is fact. It's a billion-dollar industry. So what we're doing is focusing on the positive aspects of hip-hop. Breakdancing is really not called breakdancing. It's called breaking, right? Even with speaking to uh, Maestro Kirk, he was saying that the media called symphonic music classical music. And the same thing happened with breaking. The media called it breakdance. So that's a similarity that we have together. And a lot of hip-hop artists sample a lot of classical music. And there's a lot of uh, hip-hop music that has strings and keys and things that come from you know, classical compositions. So if we look at, uh, the, at the spec of everything, you know, it's, we're introducing hip-hop culture to a more sophisticated audience. And we're introducing dance to a, a classical music to a more younger audience, right? So we're bridging that gap. And I think that's that's the correlation of the two. You know, the symphony, Missouri Symphony and Fly Dance Company, we're bridging the gap. We're bringing an audience to the symphony that sometimes might not be there. And the symphony is bringing an audience to us to to experience what we do. And we're coming together, working together. Jorge, do you like classical music? What do you listen to in your car? Actually, do. Uh, Claire de Luz is actually one of my most favorite pieces. I play that when I'm in traffic and I'm frustrated, <laughs> I play that when I'm in the morning while I'm working, you know, in the background, just it calms me down. So those are the pieces that I like. I like R&B, old school R&B, you know, Temptations, you know, Al Green, you know, something like that. Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire is always playing in my background. And then, you know, of course, some some hip hop, some of the new hip hop that's out today and some of the classic 90s hip hop. I'm always, you know, it's always on rotation, you know, Tribe Called Quest, things of that nature. But I do love classical music. When I started, like Kathy was saying, we had our reservations about it. And every group that that we bring in, uh, they have to kind of get acclimated to that, get used to the dancing to the classical music. And then after a while, they have an appreciation for it. But I've been working with Kathy since I was 14. I'm turning 40 in a couple of weeks. So ever since I met her, she's been teaching me and I've been absorbing 
her love for music as well. I have a question about your company's classical music choices or symphonic music choices. On your website, you talk about dancing to books by Stravinsky, Debussy, Vivaldi. You've mentioned Bizet. And I wondered whether as the classical music world recognizes the overwhelming whiteness of most of its music producers, European white men from the 19th and 18th century, whether you're also having discussions about your musical choices and including more diverse classical music composers like Chevalier de Saint-Georges or Ignatius Sanchez or Florence Price or composers that are not all white. We do a whole show on African-American composers. And let me tell you, nobody gets better than The Temptations. I love that music. I love old school R&B. And we have used volumes of music by African-American composers. It's just that I've used uh, things that appeal to me. I, I don't look at color. I do not look at color of anybody. And my dancers will tell you that. I look at what I listen to music that appeals to me that I think will make a good piece of music. We say, let others create movement. We're going to create art. And whatever is ready for us, and if I find it and it appeals to me, then we'll use it. I think for symphonic music, we also have the Duke Ellington uh, Nutcracker. We have have that whole Nutcracker. So I think with Kathy... Her main thing is also like the one main thing that I want to get from this conversation is that she selects music based on, I think I've heard you say this, Kathy, like powerful music, right? And if it's powerful, it could be still soft, but still powerful, right? Mm-hmm. To fill in those gaps and fill in the choreography that we have. So it doesn't matter what composer, what their background is, the song has to speak to her, you know? So that's kind of how she selects the music. So let's talk about the um, the technicalities. You, you're no strangers to sharing a stage with a full symphony orchestra. Talk me through the process of how that collaboration works in terms of musical choices, space, rehearsals. It seems like there are a lot of moving parts that all need perfect timing. And you're not in the same city as the symphony orchestra other than for a couple of days before the performance. How do you pull that all together? Well, they send us copies of music, and uh, we choreograph that. But when they get there, they have to work on tempos, how the conductor begins a piece, how the tempos are. That's the main thing. Sometimes they play things faster, and sometimes they play things slower. And sometimes they don't play all the verses that they're supposed to. For instance, we're doing Stars and Stripes forever, and we've gone back and forth over whether they're playing all the repeats, the first and second endings, as marches, you know, you can repeat a phrase or not. So we've gone back and forth with that. And uh, it's difficult sometimes because we've come across Appalachian Spring, a hoedown where they played it really fast on the recording. And then we got with the symphony and it was like a funeral dirge. <laughs> it's difficult at times, but other times it works beautifully and we hope it's going to work beautifully this time. We're prepared, we're ready, and we're flexible. We'll cover any problems that come our way. We always have a plan B. Yeah. And I think that's why the, the symphonies are very impressed with us because we could take on anything, right? So, 
And that's the same thing. It's like, okay, we could just send them the music and then they'll they just magically appear with choreography. Well, that's what we do. You know, we've been doing this for over 25 years. Kathy's ear to music, you know, she knows what's going to work, what's not going to work. And that conversation starts early while we're having these, while we're talking to the composer, we're talking to their, their directors and saying, okay, this is a list of the pieces that we have. Um, what type of show are you looking Are you looking for a pop show or a more classical show? What's the vibe of the show? And Kathy and the maestro is going back and forth. Well, I need this. And then he'll ask or they'll ask Kathy, hey, what do we recommend this? What do you recommend? Well, we want something. This piece, we have something. Our choreography is kind of slow, so we need to add something different to this. So it's just like cutting, pasting and editing and going back and forth, you know, months before we even get into the actual choreography itself. And then once we get the list of the music, that's where Kathy's ear is so perfect because she's like, okay, they said, does this song, but this is the version that we're dancing to. We need the exact version that they're dancing to. And that's where the symphonies are so great. When they get us, we all get on the court in the court because they'll send us the exact version that they're going to dance to. And when we have those, those moments, that's what makes for a great show, you know? So, I mean, besides the onstage performances, you do an incredible number of outreach events to, to young to children and, and young people. You do education classes and workshops. So how, how I mean, I'm sure that a lot of the children that you meet, particularly in the Houston area, they would love to be part of the company. So how does an aspiring dancer join the company? They call us and they come to rehearsal and... Uh, if we like what we see, mainly if they're dependable and they want to work hard, I'll take a hard worker over talent any day and consistent and an agreeable person. If they don't follow directions, then no, we don't want them. Yeah, you got Kathy says you got to leave your ego at the door. Once you leave your ego at the door, then we got to show them the way we do things. Our show with the Missouri Symphony you you were able to see uh, it's going to be just it's like 90% choreographed and maybe 10% of improv where the guys could come up and kind of change. And even that is a structured improv. So nothing that you're going to see is off the top of their head. They're not just making it up. This is months and months of rehearsal, pieces of choreography that we worked, reworked throughout the years that we know that fit well with these pieces. So you have performed at the Kennedy Center, the Lincoln Center, as well as on a lot of stages across Europe. So I'm curious, Jorge, what stage is on your bucket list? The Sydney Opera House. That's a good one. That's my bucket list. And um, of course, one day, and I'm going to say like this, we are going to play Sydney Opera House and we'll play Radio City Music Hall. I'm just going to speak it. We're going to walk in it and we're going to do it. So whether it's, <laughs> whoever's listening now, if you are listening out there, uh, Sydney Opera House and Radio City Music Hall. We're coming for you. <laughs> well, the Fly Dance Company rounds out the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights Music Festival in a show called Breaking Classical. Tomorrow night at Jesse Auditorium. You can find out more about the concert at themosey.org. And if you want to know more about Jorge and his Fly Dance Company, go to flydancecompany.com. Jorge Casco and Kathy Musicwood, what a treat. Thank you so much for chatting with me this morning. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you for having us. us. And that is it for another week. 
All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you could also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, author and all things book entrepreneur, Alex George, Sega Browdis Gallery curator, Hannah Reeves, Fly Dance Company founder, Kathy Musicwood, and its executive director, Jorge Casco. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty mid-Missouri. Missouri.